This is Michael Osterlink. Welcome to O Radio, where we explore individual and social transformation through collaborative action. I'm a psychotherapist with a transpersonal and somatic specialization. I'm a transpersonal social entrepreneur and head instructor at Seal Fits Unbeatable Mind Academy. Today's show is brought to you by Resilience Parenting. In Resilience Parenting, martial art instructors Chris and Holly Santillo share their insights they have gained as teachers and parents. They offer positive alternatives to lecturing, bribing, and punishing. Focusing instead on three pillars, learning, integrity, and service. You can learn more about their work and their book at resilienceparenting.info. Our guest today is Michelle James. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Michael. Uh, Michelle is CEO of the Center for Creative Emergence and founder of Quantum Leap Business Improv. She's a pioneer in creative creativity catalyst, facilitator, and coach who's been using universal creative principles and the process of emergence as a basis of her work with thousands of people, individual organizations and communities since 1999. She's worked with diverse organizations such as Microsoft, Panasonic, Domino's, the World Bank, NIH, the Association Performing Arts, Search for Common Ground, and she also serves as adjunct faculty for the Federal Executive Institute. She has a book coming out relatively soon. I won't actually tell you what the book is about because we'll tease it and then at the end she can she can tell us more about her book but uh welcome to our radio michelle it's great to see you great to see you too michael so you know, through your center for creative emergence you do whole brain creative facilitation one of the many tools that you use is improv and i kind of like to use that as a vehicle into the much broader work that you do do and the reason i want to do that is because i have two clients who i've I've encouraged to do improv and they've just found amazing results in terms of their developing their emotional capabilities, uh, stretching themselves intellectually and even physically getting out of some patterns of you know, physical patterns that they're kind of used to, which was obviously what patterns are all about. And improv has been a great tool for them. And, and I found that a lot of actually people don't are not familiar with improv as a tool especially for the work that you do, creative emergence and, and whole brain learning and such. So can we use that as a kind of a step in and tell us like how you use improv, why you use improv for your sure. work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so uh, I'll start by giving a distinction. There's uh, improv, like you would take an improv class to be an improv performer, where the goal is to perform improv skits or scenes or plays. Uh, and then there's applied improv, which is what I do. I, I've spent many years in improv, but what I do in my work is I go into organizations and use applied improv, which is applying the principles and practices of, from improvisational theater to the workplace, leadership, team building, collaboration, co-creation, sales, marketing, you know, in, in, any, in any arena. It's applying it to education, applying it to business, applying it to healthcare. Um, you see it, um, it's, when I first joined uh, the Applied Improvisation Network in 2005, I think there were like, I think I remember there was something like 75 of us in the group. Now there's over 7,000. Wow. So it's really a budding field. And I know uh, many, here in Charlottesville, UVA is, um, uses it in their Darden Business School, teaches some improv classes. I know a lot of MBA programs are starting to do it. So it's, it's, a, it's a, um, 
a blossoming field because why I like it so much, two, two things. One, it completely changed my life. I used to be terrified of public speaking and uh, facilitating groups. And yet I was had to, you know, that was part of what my passion was. I wanted to do it. So I took taking improv classes, helped me get over my fear and transform my worst fear into something I just love. Like I used to plan every single thing I would say or do and every moment had to be planned and every speech and every presentation and, and through improv, not only did it help me break out of my shell, but it helped me get so much more comfortable with the unknown and so much more comfortable in the moment and, and trusting the wisdom of the moment and the wisdom of what's, who's really in the room and what's really going on in the room and what's really there. Uh, and so, so that's one, so my personal story with improvs, improv changed my life and I feel like it, it helped me do my work. And uh, so I'm so passionate about using it with others to, to transform them personally and professionally. And then the second thing is just what, it, what uh, I see it do with teams and with groups. And one of the key elements of improv, um, aside from the games and the principles and, and the practices that I love about it uh, as a, a much deeper kind of um, universal principle, is um, it, it is a unifier. It naturally unifies people. And so you, you, in improv, you don't have to necessarily start out by liking everyone in the room or agreeing with everyone uh, in, in their philosophy in life. But you, you do agree that for this game or for this time period, for this improv, we're gonna play by it, we're gonna observe these principles. And I'm going to yes and, and, and add, accept what you say and add to it. I don't have to agree with it, but I'm going to accept it and add to it. Through that and a series of other things, uh, you begin to create stories or generate ideas. But what happens is oftentimes groups that had tension and were struggling, they actually begin to like each other more by just being supported, even if you're first doing it through... Uh, the contrived game of we're just going to yes and each other, Michael, this whole versus me really agreeing. But it often leads to a place where people are actually in real co-creativity and, and they get where they are agreeing. You know, listening to you talk, it sounds like it, it can be a, a tool for transpersonal yeah. work because I'm just imagining you, in order to do it, well, whatever that might mean, you might want to explain like how you do it well. Um, you actually have to step out of yourself and, you know, your fears, your anxieties, you know, you have, you have to show up differently, I would imagine, than you would normally show up in a very defensive, you know, uh, uh, way. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, I, I, com completely in that you, sh you show up differently because you interact differently and you, and I would just almost tweak it to say, you step out of the false sense of yourself and into your real self. Nice. Okay. Because, um, so you do step out of your fears and your habitual patterns and your perceived limit, limiting thoughts about yourself or perhaps about others. Uh, and you step into a deeper, richer, creative space within you and um, where, where so much more potential and possibilities exist. 
So I, the reason I think it's stepping more into yourself is because I've just, I believe that uh, we have nature on our side when we're doing improv theater. Improv theater is the way we were naturally designed to create and collaborate. Um, it's generative. It's yes anding. You know, the, the way nature does it out in nature is, you know, you, you have first have a seed and then the roots yes and that, and then the tree trunk yes ands the roots, then the branches yes and the tree. You know, it's this generative, it's, it's taking what was before and building on it and building on it and building on it and, and until you have something. Uh, improv does that, that's the yes and way. And also if you look at the way kids naturally will um, play together, and there, you know, someone will say, you know, I'm, I'm the king of the hill. And someone's like, yes, and I'm the queen. And then, then they, they create stories and they naturally do it. And then all of a sudden we go to school and we're trained, educated, socialized, or traumatized out of our natural improvising self. We go into more binary thinking, right, wrong, good, bad, yes, no. Um, that's not what pre, that's not what, how other people say it or, or, you know, the parroting or tell us back, tell us what, um, here's how it is, and if you don't see it this way or you're not reporting it back this way, you will get it's wrong. So we go from this exponential possibilities way of thinking into this more binary limiting. Also, improv, you do a lot of physical, and you warm up physically, and you get in the body, and, and you know, m most improv groups before they perform, like professional athletes, um, get do something, do things together to get in a zone, and they warm up. And um, so when you're there, you're kind of in this free, you know, natural physical space. Again, we get socialized to say, you know, from in, in school, aside from recess, when you're younger, you know, you're just sit up straight, stand, you know, face the front of the room, don't move. And then when you're an adult, many people spend, you know, their whole work days from nine to five or with traffic, maybe seven to seven, not moving the body. So not only does it let you collaborate, it, it gets you back into your more natural way of being where you're creating, you're yes-anding, and you're moving. So a, a few things that kind of popped in my mind as you're, as you're uh, describing it is flow. Yeah. Sounds like you know, people can get into a, a, a natural flow state and maybe a collective flow state. Um, you talked about emergence and the way you, you physically use your hands. <laughs> right. um, creative emergence. It's like it, it, what struck me is like the, the next thing that emerged uh, is you is you know it requires a thing below it, but is has unique characteristics. Mm. Thing is unique characteristics building upon each other. That's kind of like the visual. I just imagine as you're kind of doing it with your hands. That's interesting. I love that, and I love what you said. Yeah, it's the unique, it is unique characteristics. It's the, the principles, in my mind, the way I see the improv principles, they're, or emergence principles, even, you know, beyond improv, um, but they're, they're, they create the container for engagement. They create, like, here are, the, here are the principles we're going to interact from, because they're oftentimes different, or in some cases, flat-out opposite, of our conventional ways of interacting in, you know, in the workplace. So here, here's the agreement so that we're going we're gonna to interact from this. So it allows for new ways of being, which allows for that whatever's underneath to emerge. 
And so if you're, if you're doing an improv scene and the goal is to perform a play or a scene uh, or a game, it, it, it will work to that. Well, if you're trying to pro solve a problem or if you're trying to create a new vision or if you're trying to uh, get a team to collaborate more uh, generatively, um, then the solutions, the, it's like um, where a creative emergence fits right into improv is, you know, emergence is the holes greater than the sum of the parts. And there's a surprising element and there are unique characteristics. So those are some of the, the key elements of emergence. That's, there's going to be a surprising thing in the holes greater than some of the parts. Well, improv is one of, not the only way, but it's an amazing way of getting to um, underneath to where something novel can emerge, where because of the principles and the agreements, a, a, a sort of a, a field is created, a creative field is created where something surprising and novel can emerge from there. Sure. And flow is when it seems like it's effortless, but it takes a lot of effort to get to, <laughs> to get there. there. Yeah. Effortless effort? Or yeah. <laughs> Effortful effortlessness or something like something that. Like that. Yeah. You know, it, it's, we've done in the past in my transparson work where we bring leaders together up to 30 leaders professionally facilitated off outside of dc find find common ground create uh relationships create new space for new ideas and it struck me listening to you uh improv would be an amazing tool if we still did these things for these efforts because conceptually the way i looked at this was you know, people show up and they have their blinders on for their particular worldview. They're, you know, this is the way the world should be. I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative, I'm a libertarian, whatever, whatever their, their ideology happens to be. And they have to compete in a defensive way against the other person. But when you get to know one another through professional facilitation, their defenses drop. And instead of like such blinders, two, instead of two ideas competing with each other, as you just stated, there's a field that emerges and a third idea or a fourth yeah. idea or a fifth idea can emerge, which would never have emerged in this conflictual model. And that was, that was kind of the way we did these retreats, but we never did improv. And I think improv could have like added 20x to the experiences that people had and created even bigger fields with more possibility. Well, so, I love that you did that and, and absolutely resonate with the third way. You know, sometimes there are people are, um, you know, at any given time when we're faced with something new or different, we have a choice to defend or expand. Yeah. You know, we'll defend. No, ours is the right way. And then I'll do everything to try to prove how I'm right. Or expand to just say, you know, even suspend. Um, I don't know that I believe. I don't know that I agree with what you're saying. I don't know I believe. But let's then go underneath our belief systems into more of, you know, going deeper into the values and deeper into the creative space and see what we can come up with that contains what's significant to you and what's significant to me. Right. That could be a third way that carries something from both of us. Right. It was novel and unexpected and it would look different than if I was just spent the whole time trying to convince you to see it my way. And so, yeah, I, I love that you're joining an improv is, is um, one a really nice tool for that for sure if we ever do those again i'll have to remember that and bring you on board i love it it'd, it'd be fun and amazing to watch those <laughs> people interact in such a manner yeah. 
you know, one of the things I know that you're very skilled at, because I, I, I was a recipient of this about over a decade ago, was uh, body work, somatically trained. Um, and watching you move and talking about your work, one of the things that struck me that I'd like you to talk about is that the, the limitations of one's thinking, like how we are locked into an egoic or, or our perspective, uh, right or wrong, like a, our, our view is the only view. Anyone who doesn't hold our view is wrong. We have to defend it to the end, whether literally to the death or figuratively to the death. Uh, you know, the way I just described it is very cognitive, very uh, mental, but there's a somatic aspect to all of us and to that whole process. And I have to imagine when you get people moving in their bodies differently, you help them break old patterns of thought, not just old patterns of movement. Talk, can you talk about your, like the somatic way you work with folks? Sure. Uh, yeah, and it is true. You know, when people begin to move differently, they create differently. They think of different ideas. So once again, you know, a lot of what I got into, I got into because of some sort of struggle or challenge in my own life. I broke my jaw in a car accident um, years ago when I was 22 and had jaw surgeries and was in a lot of pain. And so I hadn't... Um, Conventional physical therapy was doing something, but then I, I landed upon Kay Miller, someone referred for the Somatic Institute. And um, so she gave, she gave me great help and great relief in my uh, jaw. And then I loved the work so much. I benefited so much that I went and I spent five years becoming a master practitioner in core somatics in a training program. I'd go to Pittsburgh for, for five years a lot. Uh, but I am... Um, and while I was a practitioner and could do one-on-one -on -one clients, I chose to do, which um, I did a little bit, I bring more of the body-centered knowledge into my work with, with my, actually with my coaching clients, but also with organizations, because how much I found out how significant it was when you, un, like you said, unlock part of the body, break habitual movement patterns, um, move differently shape differently you know it fits so well into the theater and the storytelling you know as you embody literally you know and so i started i i tried an experiment once i remember when i was first starting training where you know i had people think of um ideas uh ideas as if they were i remember having them doing a creative thinking exercise where they were thinking ideas of as if they were a cat and how would a cat you know be important and then I had them embody it and become the cat and, um, and then think of the ideas and the solutions. And it was exponential, the difference. I mean, everybody was walking around the room, you know, doing that. But the ideas and the, the way of the sensory wisdom that they um, imagined from different from how a cat would think, how I imagine one would think to pretend like you are one, embody it, move from it, be. And um, so that's one way of using the body. So you embody a concept. So sometimes you can embody a concept, you know, embody, you be marketing, you be sales, you know, you could, I mean, or you could embody, uh, you can anthropomorphize anything. You can embody and create anything. Another way is just truly not through pretending or embodying that you are something, but just doing a lot of non-habitual movement. Yeah. Um, you know, um, giving your body your pattern breaks. So it's, I, I do that before every time I facilitate, 
I spend time at my house doing all kinds of non-habitual movement, moving my body differently because I, it helps me get completely present so I can be with what's happening in the room and out of my, um, so my agenda is in the back, but what's really happening in the room is I can be present to that and not separate from it. How, you uh, say so you've worked with some amazing organizations. The ones I mentioned are very, very well known or companies and organizations. You know, how open, without naming any particular groups, are these companies and corporations at the very beginning? Obviously, if they continue working with you, there's an opening there. But to work in this, you know, whole brain, creative, facilitative way, using improv as a tool, using movement as a tool, creative emergence as kind of the backstop of what you're attempting to do. I mean, these are not mainstream. Right. Tools. Yeah, um, well, you're bringing up a, a great point because uh, there's a few answers to that question. First of all, now, much more open than they were, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s when I was first starting. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I have the keys to the, you know, I, I know all these magic processes, people, and it was, uh, so one is just times have changed and more and more people are open, you know. Um, Dan Pink's book, A Whole New Mind, in 2005, really opened the door. I remember there, there was a series of things that happened on the scene since I started my business that really helped legitimize more of what we do. Um, improv becoming, you know, the Drew Carey show, just people knowing what it was. Okay. So, so um, storytelling becoming more popular. Uh, you know, it was an organizational storytelling group. and um, But... The, to answer your question, it's, it's still not in the mainstream, you know, um, it's still sort of the people in the organizations that tend to hire me are still a little bit of the, um, you know, different, the edge pusher and, you know, the edge, the, they push the boundaries in their organization. You know, they might have to sell it a little to some other people unless they're one of the leaders, which often happens. And um, so typically the way I started was nobody was, it didn't make sense. I was having a hard time selling it. So when I started the creativity network in DC, the capital creativity network, um, people would come and then I started doing public workshops. And that was how I started. The people that would take my workshops would have a transformative experience. Then they'd bring me in these organizations. Then once people, once other organizations saw that I'd worked for some recognizable, you know, legitimate companies, that became much easier. Um, so I'd say the world has made it much easier. There's many more people open to it. And it's still, it, you know, it's still something that I have to explain a lot. And it's still not for everyone. It tends to be, you know, more people that are a little, still more risk takers. But once you're in the room, the, the key is making it accessible and safe for everyone because everyone, whether they believe in it or not, you know, I look at it, that's my role. I'm the bridge to help, to help make it a great experience for them and meet, meet everybody where, where they are on it, whether they believe in it or not. Once people access and feel their own creativity and that own creative aliveness in them, there's a natural thing that takes over that goes way beyond me or them or anything. And, um, that's, that brings the legitimacy to it. What would you say are some of the limitations to creativity that are found within either individuals or institutions? Because one of the things you said earlier struck me, like 
children are naturally creative. They storytellers, they're playful, they're not locked into the kind of the binary thing you talked about, but then they go to school and that all changes. So at least I would imagine one institution that is counter to creativity is school. Some school, most schools, some, schools. some aren't, yeah, right. So like what other, institu- what other institutional barriers are to, to, to natural creativity? And what, what are some psychological um, uh, mechanisms that are also counter to creativity that you've encountered in individuals? Right, it's so funny you're asking because I was literally writing a thing, um, an article yesterday on creativity buzzkills. <laughs> because but they, they were less historic and more what people might say in a room uh, but I would say well one thing I can say is um, one activity I do with certain groups you know there are certain groups depends what the objectives are is will determine the activities I do and I like to create new activities so determine depending on the objectives will create it and so with certain groups I can go you know a little bit more go deeper into exploratory techniques and with other ones, you know, it it depends who the group is, what the objectives, but with certain, with some groups in my public workshops, um, I sometimes have had people tell a two minute creativity story. Sometimes they just tell the story and it's just, uh, sometimes they just tell the story and it's just uh, talking to a partner. And then other times they might have to act, act it out. And one of the things that shows up in every one of those stories, to answer your question, is there's a part where they have their, their there's almost this archetypal, they, they were exploring, they were open, and something in their history shut their creativity down, whether it was a family member, a school, a teacher, well-meaning even, saying, you know, you're not really an artist, or, you know, or, um, or somebody saying, well, you're not creative, you're the left brain, you know, you're the engine, you know, you're, you're the account, whatever it is, there are, it's layers and layers of stories, much, most of which have been told by someone in society, then school reinforces it, then they go into business culture, and unless they're working in certain boutique firms, or, or in a culture which just really values creativity and innovation, um, but most business environments still predominantly are designed from the old model of maintaining, you know, keeping order and maintaining and, and doing the work, maintaining uh, versus innovating. Um, or if people are innovating, they're, they're still trying to just innovate from left brain dominant approaches only. So I would say one of it is just the biggest thing is just the way our society is set up in general, and there are tons of exceptions to all of that. Um, the stories people tell themselves and getting in habits, getting in the same familiar patterns, and um, and getting and not, you know, I think once people do what, even if they like take an improv class or an art class or something, and they're not even doing it, bringing it into their work, once they start to kind of move, get that going again. It's sort of like, you know, if you haven't worked out for a long time, you start working out, you feel alive. If you haven't worked out for a long time, you start working out, you feel alive, you feel like there's everything you can do physically. You get to so much more you can do. Similarly, when you start working out your creative muscles again, you feel alive. So I think um, people getting nervous, people not feeling psychologically safe is a big one. 
So you might have a, an environment where someone says, we want, our, we want our people to be more creative and take risks. Um, if they take risks and the risk doesn't work out, if it fails, um, are you a risk averse culture? Could they lose their job? Yes. Well, then you got to look at that before you start doing it. So, so a culture, looking at the culture that supports it, um, looking at the environment, and looking at how you interact. If I if I'm if I'm working with you and I want you to be more creative, and then some of your idea, and we start brainstorming, and you start generating ideas, and I'm immediately yes, but, and I start cutting them down immediately while they're seeds, they won't have a chance. So I think I actually believe it's mostly unhealthy um, creativity inhibiting patterns, stories, and beliefs. Okay. More than anything. Okay. Some from outside of ourselves, some from within. Uh, do, you, do you notice as we transition from the industrial age to the post-industrial, the information age, that there's more of an opening to creativity just because our technology both facilitates it and breaks some of the binds, bind, bind, uh, breaks some of the bonds to the industrial age, which is very uh, structured and ordered? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's completely shifted, I'd say. You know, I, I see it so different. Um, you know, just even thinking around, you know, the, when I first started my business 20 years ago, ago um, I had very few government clients. It was mainly, you know, um, and some, a few nonprofits, but they were mainly corporate and more innovative, at the, you know, in the, the, and then now, half my clients practically are a government agency. You know, they're, so everything is shifting. You see it across the board. So it's a much easier, you know, it's a, it's a much more conducive environment. I think the challenge is people use the words and they still are, they're trying to approach creative thinking or creative culture with the same um, skill set, mindset, heart set, spirit set, you know, body set of critical thinking or strategic thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in my mind, creative thinking is the yes and. It's uh, critical thinking's yes, critical thinking, yes, strategic thinking, and add, you know, the create, add the whole brain element, add um, stories, add visual thinking, add um, arts-based practices, theater-based practices, movement-based practices, and all of a sudden, you exponentially get more. It, it sounds like you add play. <laughs> uh, yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. You add play and people having fun. You know, when people are laughing, having fun, the endorphins are going, new neural pathways are created, you know, that um, pattern breaking, new pathway making. That, I think that's always the goal. Uh, last question for you. Um, all the, the, all the, institutional and psychological limitations aside is there i'm wondering if there's a, fl a natural flow to creativity where there's novelty and then order novelty and order meaning like you have a, an emergence you know a new emergence that, are, that arises and then it becomes kind of concretized and ordered and then a new emergence arises out of that is, is there does it happen kind of that way so you have to have order and freedom order and freedom or no, order and novelty order and novelty uh, I, I think you summed it up really well. Like, uh, that's how I see it. That's my experience of it. Um, that, that creativity actually 
um, is that, you know, happens at that integration, that intersection of structure and flow. Okay. Of, of right brain and left brain, of, you know, more masculine practices, feminine practices, mm -hmm. of more conventional linear practices and more whole brain, you know, nonlinear practices. So, um, and, and I think it does, it, it, it has that cycle of diverging, converging, you know, even in the creative process, like I always will say, before we get into structuring and um, anal analyzing, before we go into, you know, structuring the data and grouping it, let's, let's go into divergence and mine for what else is possible, then go in. So I think that diverge, converge, you know, that, that structure flow, the, the um, chaos order, yeah, yeah. It, the integration, so I, I, I see it as like, yeah, like it integrates, and then all of a sudden a new level of kind of chaos emerges, then you work creatively with it for the next level, the next order, then the next level of chaos. You know, it fits really well in with uh, uh, complexity yeah. sciences. Yeah, because I could, like, yeah. watching your hands, I could see, like, order, <laughs> freedom, order, order, you know, novelty, for, you know. It's <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's amazing. So that's why I loved going into it, because I feel like as long, however long, I am in this practice of applied creativity. I will never know all there is to know, and there's always so much more to learn and explore and experiment. And, you know, it's really, um, just, I would just finish with this. I think one of the most significant things is when turning the relate, what our relationship to the unknown. And mm -hmm. we naturally, I believe, used to have a little bit of a, you know, fun with it, you know, think of babies, you know, and like everything's new and novel and exciting and, the, and just that we like mysteries and something's not revealed or haunted houses or peekaboo, you know, all of that. And then all of a sudden the unknown becomes this scary part, which is a little bit, you know, back in our, um, our brain from, you know, the old ancient days of, you know, could be a woolly mammoth across the, the way. But when we have a relationship with the unknown, when we hit, when we bump up the unknown, um, it's not about whether we feel comfortable or uncomfortable, but we can change. We don't have to fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. We can change and turn in that moment. We can make a conscious choice to say, I don't know, but I'm going to discover. And if we could just go from, take the unknown and go into a discovery mindset, that really frees that that opens up the journey to be so much um, richer and it opens up creative potential immensely. Yes. <laughs> well, that's perfectly said, but th that's not your last words because I do need you to talk a little bit about your book, Tease Us, okay. and then also how people can find more about your work as well. Oh, great. Well, my book is called Pattern Breaks, no surprise, Pattern Breaks, A Facilitator's Guide to Cultivating Creativity. And it's based and it's divided sort of into three parts. One is the, the internal part, um, and I call it pre-workshop rituals. It's your internal state. What are you doing for yourself to be able to hold everything that would emerge in a room and to hold it with ease and grace? And whether you do improv or not, where you're in comfort with um, anything that can show up. And so the pre-workshop rituals, and then the second part is the workshop itself, you know, different tools, techniques, principles, practices. And the third part is post-workshop integration. Well, now that they've had all this work um, and done all this, how, what are things you can do to set up 
for yourself, for those you facilitate, so that the learning continues nice. and the integration continues. So it's called Pattern Breaks, a facilitator's guide to culture and creativity. I hope to have it done within the next, by the end of this year. Okay. Uh, so I'm still working on it. Yep. I, uh, it's been a slow going, but, but I'm, I'm now past the halfway hump, you know, so, um, but because I find the essence of everything, all creativity needs some break in pattern of somewhere. Um, and then people can reach me on my website, um, creativeemergence.com, www.creativeemergence.com, C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E-E-M-E-R-G-E-N-C-E. -E -E -E. Very cool. Uh, any other social media that you're on that people can follow you? Oh, well, I, um, I have a blog. If you just Google the Fertile Unknown blog. Um, my blog's called The Fertile Unknown, and um, you, you can follow me there. And I'm on Twitter, C-R-E-A-T-V, Emergence, like creative, but just with a V, Emergence. Um, and I'm on Instagram. My Instagram's like mostly nature shots, but, you know, <laughs> uh, so, yeah. We will make sure to add all your social media websites oh. on the good stuff to the show notes. People can follow you on different platforms. Uh, Michelle, great to see you. Great to have this conversation. Look you forward to your book coming out uh, at the end of this year, hopefully. And we'll have to have you back on to talk about it. Oh, that sounds great. I would love that. So good to see you again. Good to see you as well. Take, Take care. care.